welcome to Ask Me Anything. This is a podcast about the Bible, faith, what it means to be human, and following Jesus. I'm Dan Gillis, the young adults pastor at Village Church. And today, I'm very excited about today's guest, which is John Thompson. John is the pastor of Sanctus Church in Ontario. He also uh, authored a book called Convergence, a book about spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts. Uh, I have a few mutual friends with John, and I have personally learned a lot about these two topics um, from him. And today, I'm excited to be talking about how to grow in in, uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, John, welcome to the podcast. It is so great to have you as a guest um, on this podcast. Great. Hey, Dan, good to see you. And hey, everyone, great to see you from a distance. Um, John, I thought it would be great if you could just begin by just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, So, like you know, my name is John. I am a proud Gen Xer. I'm 44 years old. I'm in the transitional generation. I've got three kids under 12. My wife's name is Joanna. I've been in full-time ministry. Uh, This June will be 22 years. I start year 23, July 1st. Congratulations. Uh, Yeah, yeah, thank you, Um, which is cool. I've been working in this same church that whole ministry run. Uh, so I was the youth pastor, then the youth and young adults pastor, and then very unexpectedly, very sovereignly at 30, became the senior pastor, uh, and then have uh, worked with a guy named Dave, who's a co-lead pastor because of gifts and complexity. Our church is uh, just over 3,000 people. It's at four locations in the east side of Toronto. We're planning six more. Uh, so complex and big. Big is not better. It's just the reality I lead in. And uh, yeah, so I'm in charge of vision or to use Ern McManus's language, cultural architecture. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then I'm the primary teacher. Uh, and then the language we use internally is if there's two sort of archetypes, uh, I'm Moses and David's Aaron uh, by gift. So yeah, that's where we'll begin. So incredible. I am very interested to hear uh, how that all began, like even from a young adult age, uh, you know, what was it like to experience, you know, your calling into uh, your vocation as a pastor, also like your calling into writing a book? Like, where did that all start and where did that begin for you? Yeah, so um, I'm a fifth generation Christian, which I love. Um, and my parents were missionaries, but not in the traditional sense. I grew up actually in Ecuador in the 80s. So I lived a National Geographic experience before the internet, before globalization. So I had the last sort of run at living isolated in the real way that no one does anymore. Um, But no, it was in grade, I was a junior high in grade seven. I had an encounter with Jesus where Jesus directly told me that I would be a pastor. I had no choice. Wow. There had been no pressure. My parents had never talked about it. I, there was no, I didn't come from a Pentecostal or charismatic environment where that was even talked about. I was, I was actually in a very conservative church actually when this happened to me. And uh, when I told my parents, they smiled. So I'm around 12 or 13. And I said to Jesus, well, there's two things I don't like. I don't know if I will obey you sexually. (laughs) That was number one. And number two was, I don't know if I'll love your church enough, which I, in in reflection, I'm like, wow, a 12-year-old kid saying, I don't know if I'll love your church. Something real was going on there. Anyway, um, uh, I had this debate with Jesus. And of course, I lost. Uh, when I told my parents the story, they smiled and said, you know, it's so weird you say this. When you were six months old, we were at a, an evangelistic uh, moment in, out actually here in Oshawa, so the east side of Toronto. And uh, there was a guy who was the, um, his name was Barry White, I think. He was, the, like a, he was like the Canadian Billy Graham in the okay. 70s. Yeah. And very, very conservative dude to part of the Alliance churches. 
And I was in my stroller, which of course would now be illegal and no parent would ever own because you kill children in those ones. And he walked up and he put his hand over me and said, and this child will become a great preacher and evangelist and walked away. And my parents were like, that's so freaking weird. Yeah. Why did he even say that? They totally forgot about it. Never, never filtered into anything. Uh, they didn't ponder these things in their heart like Mary did about Jesus. Uh, and then uh, when I told them, they went, oh, I wonder. So I actually started in grade nine preparing to become a pastor. Wow. I changed my high school education courses as much as I can, could. I started talking to seminary and Bible, co Bible college professors, started running the Christian school uh, group. I was the crazy guy with the big cross and the bad Christian t-shirts, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, no, that, that's how it happened. And I just, I want to share with your community, uh, of course, all vocations are important. There's no sep sacred, sacred and secular divide. Yeah, But for those who are called into vocational ministry, which is a calling, uh, my calling story should not determine yours. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that out of arrogance, like, behold, I'm John, my story. I mean, most people, when they talk about calling stories, use my story. I had an encounter with Jesus. I was called. But there's four. There's not one. Right. So mine is like the Paul Jeremiah. You have no choice. You're screwed. It is so before the beginning of time. And I'm a Calvinist, so I'm even doubly okay with that. Uh, but, then, but then there are three others, right, where you see Hannah and Samuel, where there's family calling, and it's very, uh, very anti-North American, but very biblical. Uh, and then there, there are like the Timothy story where the community says, we've laid hands on you, we see this in you. And then there are other times just by spiritual gift groupings, you see that in Timothy. And then in Acts, it says they just voted on elders. So one, one of those four or two of those four are not more or less spiritual. They're just so. And the reason why I want to share this for some of your community, I know some of you are probably saying, oh my goodness, like I want to, uh, I want to become a pastor, but I don't feel like I had that profound encounter. That's irrelevant. One is not more or less spiritual. Uh, they're all the same. They're just different paths to the same thing. Yeah, I love that. Uh, even as, as a contrast to your, your calling, mine was much different where I didn't have some, you know, there wasn't some dramatic event that happened in my life where I realized that I would one day become a pastor or enter into ministry. It was more of a progress, progressive realization of, oh, I'm really interested in the Bible. And, oh, I really am impacted by this one youth pastor. And, oh, man, I would love to do that for other people. And so it was a okay. slow progression over time rather than one or two or a few radical right. experiences. So right. I, I love, I love the diversity of experience into calling uh, there, especially as, you know, different young adults are, are thinking through, you know, multiple sorts of um, vocational callings into, you know, different types of, of fields and, and all of that. Um, so one of the things that you've done, which I am so happy you have is written your book convergence. And I want to talk a little bit about that today. And um I want to start in um, near the beginning. You talk about Philippians chapter two mm. and you talk about Jesus. I do. And you talk about this idea that, you know, sometimes we think that we can't do the things that Jesus did because we're not God. Right. And um, you even at, at times in your book would say, would concern us that we might have the wrong view of Jesus there. And so I was wondering if you could start a little bit there and talk about um, how did Jesus do all of the incredible stuff that he did? Yeah. So the very first thing, you know, I said in the book was during that junior high moment where I was called the ministry, it's the same story where I said to my youth pastor, where's all the stuff? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I love our church and we sing well here and youth group's awesome. I was part of the Purple Maniacs. That was the youth group, like all the stupid things from the 80s and 90s. 
Um, but I was like, but where's the healings and all the other stuff? And he said, you got to change your expectations because Jesus is God. You're not God. We can't repeat the things Jesus did. And he was doing that to guard me, right? He was trying to build appropriate expectations because we all know that expectations can kill everything. And I appreciate it, but it was wrong. (laughs) So let me, uh, I'll do a super summary of the conversation and then your community can go back, read the book or listen to some other podcasts I've done to work this through theologically. So number one, we got we to never forget. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus existed before he was born. Jesus always has existed, will existed. He is equal to the Father, will be worshipped with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And there's the theological phrase, immutability. You cannot change who God is. So all that's true. But what's amazing in Philippians 2, which by the way was a worship song, Philippians 2 was a worship song sung in early churches. So it was like, it was like Bethel 65 AD or whatever, you know, you listen right. to. So, so he inserts it in and it says, Jesus, who's in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And basically what Paul is saying is Jesus is equal with the Father. If you say that, then Jesus has to be God because you can't have the nature of God and not be God for only one being has that nature. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no other being in or outside of time that has that, which is, by the way, a shocking statement for an Orthodox rabbi who's saying this 30 years or 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Like, it's just, it's so wrong, it's right. Anyway, but in the same breath where he says he does not consider equality with God and he's equal, and you're like, what? And basically, you know, Eugene Peterson in The Message gets it right, where he basically, in some version, says he didn't choose to seize the advantages or use what he's got. And then the whole song's like how he took on flesh, Christmas, lived a perfect life, died death, and is exalted. So we, we know that Jesus, who never, the immutability is never touched. Jesus never changes. And yet, he chooses not to access some stuff where he's down here. And so the question I asked was, because Philippians 2 is what I call an upstairs view. You got to pair upstairs with downstairs to get the whole house. So how did Jesus not, though equal with the Father, and never stop being God, how did he not access his advantages of being God between Christmas and Easter? And so you got to pair all this together. And then you really get shocking. In Luke, it says Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit lightens on Jesus. And then after that, Jesus does all this amazing stuff. And like as you and I have talked, before Jesus was baptized in the Spirit, he never healed, he never did deliverances, he never did any new teaching. Once he's in the temple, and people are like, oh my goodness, this junior high has so much ability to know the scripture, but no one followed him. So right after Jesus is given the spirit, you got to ask, well, why was he giving the spirit? Why does Jesus need the spirit? He's God. doesn't make any sense. And then it gets more confusing in the book of John, in John 5 and I think John 14, where Jesus says, I do nothing except what the Father tells me to do. And I'm like, why? And he says, I actually do nothing until I see what the Father's up to, basically. And then he also says, and by the way, if you believe in me, you'll do the same things I'm doing in greater. And I'm like, I don't believe that. So how do I work all this out? And when you pair Philippians 2 and John and Luke and Mark, you suddenly realize something. Jesus was given the Spirit to affirm his identity. This is my son. But Jesus is also given the Spirit to show what a normal Christian life looks like. Because after his baptism, it says Jesus is full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit, uh, all this. So Jesus didn't need the Spirit, but Jesus chose not, here's the uh moment, chose not to do ministry out of his godness, his divinity, though he had it, not once between Christmas and Easter. Hmm. In other words, Jesus used spiritual gifts. 
So when he gave the Sermon on the Mount, gift of teaching. When he always says phrases like, he knew it was in their heart, word of knowledge. When he healed someone, it wasn't because he was accessing his credit card called God. He was using the gift of healing. When he cast out demons, miracles. And this is why when it says in John, you'll do the same things I've been doing, it's true because we have the same spirit. And as Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, and Peter does it in 1 Peter, we are the body of Christ on earth now, and we have the gifts of the Spirit, and we have the fruit of the Spirit. So we get to walk like Jesus and do the same things that Jesus did because Jesus chose not to cling to the advantages of divinity, even though he never stopped being divine, which then allows us to really say, I can be like him. Because if he did it out of his godness, you never can do it. And Jesus is a liar, by the way. Most Christians go, I grew up in church and I'm going to be like Jesus, but it's impossible. Hmm. Right? So there's this underlying assumption that we have when Jesus says, when he looks at his disciples, and I think in application looks at us and says, you will do the things that I have been doing. Mm -hmm. We tend to read that and think, yeah, but was he actually serious? Because maybe like, does he not realize that like he's the divine son of God who has, you know, all powerful and all knowing and all of these things. But I, I, you know, I'm just trying to get through school and, you know, all of these different things. I really do the things that Jesus did. But between Christmas and Easter, he didn't know everything. Hmm. See, haven't you always been confused by the verses where Jesus says, I don't know when I'm coming back. What? You're you're God. And Jesus says, oh, it, it says that he grew in stature and knowledge. Well, I don't understand. How are you growing the stature of knowledge when you're the omnipresent, eternal creator of heaven and earth, the word before the beginning of time that helped? What? Oh, see, he's not, this is what I say all the time, you know this, right? He's not just our savior and our Lord, he's our model. He chooses in eternity past with the Father and the Spirit to demonstrate what a normal Christian life will look like. So he not only comes to save us, he not only comes so we can know that know who God is in the face of Jesus, he also shows us what life looks like. So... The the theology in the New Testament is Jesus always was using spiritual gifts to serve God, the Father, and Jesus was using spiritual practices to listen because he actually didn't know what he was supposed to do next. And that explains why Jesus leaves at the wrong time all the time. Uh, I think he is alone praying in the Gospels 48 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Every time something of significance happens, the transfiguration, the choosing of the 12, uh, the cross, there are others, uh, the temptation, Jesus is praying alone. So here's the thing. Jesus says in John, I do nothing except what I see the Father doing. How does he see it since he's not using the advantages of divinity? He's using solitude, silence, meditation, Christian meditation, practice, uh, practicing uh, prayer, reading God's word, uh, fasting. And so Spiritual gifts are how we serve like Jesus, and spiritual practices is how we walk like the Father, with the Father like Jesus did, and we get permission what to do. But if you're never practicing disciplines, you'll never hear. Yeah. So you presume, and I presume growing up in church, because we both did in parts, uh, this very simple thing. Well, Jesus knew everything. But wonder if he didn't. Mm-hmm. So I think this uh, begins to, I think, stir in our minds, because this is maybe new for a lot of us. Um, You know, uh, uh, I think one of the terms that we hear, um, Young Life is a really big ministry here and is doing a lot of really cool things. A really funny phrase that comes from Young Life is that Jesus is God in a bod. And in the book, you kind of critique that idea that 
no, 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 like Jesus doesn't just have a human body and then a divine mind. Like he's not like pretending to be human and walking around zapping his, his God magic around. What you're saying, John, which I think is very, very profound, rooting this back into what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and then also what we see in the early chapters of the four Gospels where Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God comes on him, and then he's, he leaves the wilderness empowered by the Holy Spirit. What we read, what we come to the conclusion is, that Jesus actually lived a real human life and he did the stuff that he did empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I think another thing just, just that I've also learned from you and, and also from, from your book and different you know, lectures that you, you have taught as well is when other, we read about other people performing miracles in both the Old and New Testament, we don't then assume that they are God. Like when, you know, Peter heals someone or, you know, someone casts out a demon, we don't jump to the conclusion that, oh, they must be the divine. What yeah, we yeah. say then is, oh, they must have the spirit of God. Right. And, and, and let's be clear. Jesus is God. Yes. Jesus never stops being God. Jesus deserves our worship. Jesus is the only Savior. He's the second person of the Trinity, and he's always existed and always will be, and he is our judge. We're not taking away from that. We're just saying that the scriptures give us the upstairs and downstairs view for a minute that actually Paul replicates when he talks about gifts and disciplines in 1 Corinthians, in Romans 12, in Ephesians 4, in 1 Peter 4 with Peter. So, so he is God, but the miracle moments don't prove he's God. And by the way, interestingly, side note, that's why John does not include exorcisms in the Gospel of John, because they were not evidences of being divine in Jewish culture. You're blowing my mind, man. <laughs> Every time I'm with you, I feel like I'm learning something. And I, I think that's so, I love like the, the holding those two in tension. And I think that's what we need to do as Christians. Because right. in that same breath, um, Paul also quotes Isaiah chapter 45, where it says, at the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Uh, he also says that Jesus is the name above every name. If you ask any Jew in that day, what is the name above every name. They would say Yahweh. Yahweh yeah. Jesus, uh, Paul is arguing Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He is the God who led the Israelites out of, you know, Egyptian slavery. He is, he is, the, he is our God, but he also decided to live a fully human life, which is why Hebrews 4 could say that he was actually tempted with sin. He wasn't pretending. He lived a real human life and identified with us but he did what he did empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want to yeah. talk about that because yeah. Jesus invites us to this kind of life, a life led by the Spirit. And so I, I'm curious, how do we begin to enter into the life that Jesus intended for us? Because I remember when I was in Bible college in Florida, I had this incredible teacher and I looked up to him so much. And I remember he was teaching through the book of um, Galatians. And he quoted in Galatians where it says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not uh, gratify the desires of the flesh. And I raised up my hand immediately and said, how do I do that? Because I don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh. I was like, this is like the silver bullet. This is the key. Like, how do I do that? And I remember him pausing and saying, I'll get back to you. And I was devastated because, you know, I want, I want to have the kind of life that Jesus has. And I think, you know, many of us followers, I would say most, if not all of us, I think it's our, it's the cry of our heart of, uh, just like crying Abba Father is like, I want to please God. I want more of God. And so I think all of our listeners as, as followers of Jesus are wondering, 
how do I do that? Like, okay, I get the Jesus thing, but how does that work into my life? And so John, I'm just wondering if you could begin to unpack as we, as we chat about this, how do we begin to kind of live a life where we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? Yeah. So rule number one is this, (laughs) the Holy Spirit is the only door to Jesus. Every experience you've had with Jesus, you didn't have without him. So I preached this a few years ago at our church. If you're stuck with Jesus, you're in real trouble. And everyone's like, what? I said, oh, no, you understand. We're Trinitarians. We're Trinitarians. So the Holy Spirit will always take you to Jesus. And Jesus will always take you to the Father. If you're always just praying to Jesus and talking to Jesus and never getting the Father, you're not getting it yet. Mm-hmm. So we worship one God who's found in eternal community. That's why our God is love and that's why he's holy. You can't be loving and holy without someone else in the room. So, or as Karl Barth said, we're monotheist mutated. I think he said that. So, so here's one of the most important things we got to catch. Uh, every experience you've had with God is the Holy Spirit's entrance. He's the door opener. So you've had more encounters with the Holy Spirit than you realize. Every campfire moment, every time you've prayed, it's always him. First thing. Second thing, we need to realize what the scriptures teach. So uh, Ephesians chapter one says that you have been sealed into the spirit until the day of redemption. He's not going anywhere. It says in first Corinthians, you're the temple of the Holy spirit. So if you're a born again, Christian, you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you are possessed. And this is critical. You are a sentient being a human that is possessed by another type of being that is not human that lives inside of you. First thing you got to get through your head. There is a being with another mind that is not created that is in you. So every human being on earth that's a Christian is possessed just by the right spirit, first thing. Second of all, when you start thinking of the Holy Spirit, you've got to remember the Holy Spirit is our comforter. He's our guarantee of resurrection, right? All these, these, are, these are all grand statements. But how we begin to walk with the Holy Spirit is we look at Jesus as our model because Jesus demonstrates how to walk with the Father and the Spirit. So what does Jesus do? Well, number one, Jesus regularly practices spiritual disciplines to listen. So if you want to walk in the Spirit, it's not about falling under the ground, though you could. It's not about ecstatic visions, though that might happen. It's actually spiritual disciplines carve out the space, clear the environment to actually listen and be with Him. And right when you're with him, Jesus will suddenly show up, okay? <laughs> you, you, never one without the other. Uh, so that's the critical thing. Fasting, prayer, solitude, silence, confession of sin, all those. That's why you use the language. Uh, the spiritual practices are guaranteed places of encounter with God and transformation after you've met God through Jesus. The other thing is you've got to know your spiritual gifts, and you actually need to know them, not from a test. You need to find out what your gifts are because the spiritual gifts you've been given, according to Romans and 1 Corinthians, were sovereignly assigned to you. You had no choice in them. And they have to, he has to be in the room for them to work. So if you have mercy and it's a spiritual gift, he has to be in the room for it to work every time. It's not your gift. We're not witches or psychics. It's, it's him. And so what's amazing is when you start practicing the disciplines, you become aware of his presence more and more. Uh, and aware doesn't mean fire tunnels. Aware doesn't mean Gabriel showing up. Aware just means you're aware. He's there. And then as you start finding what your spiritual gifts are and you really find out, and by the way, you won't have all 21. You'll probably have one or two or three. Every time you'll start using them, you'll realize how much he's actually in the room because when you do that thing, there will be a much larger kingdom impact than the person beside you who's not gifted. So I always say almost all gifts become disciplines when it's not a gift. Hmm. I, I don't have the gift of giving, 
but I discipline myself to give. But people with the gift of giving, oh, they can't wait to make more money and to give it away. And they find spiritual joy in it, and there's so much more kingdom impact. So to walk in the Spirit, you know, one, you need to know what has been declared over you. Baptized in the Spirit at conversion, 1 Corinthians. Uh, sealed until the day of redemption. He is the Spirit of truth that leads you into all Scripture. Like there's all these things. And then you need to pray for the fruit of the Spirit every day. That's important because as we're talking about gifting, I think a lot of times we separate gifting from fruit. Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is right between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And so it's amazing that the most scary and, uh, and beautiful description of love is right in the middle of the conversation about gifts. Mm-hmm. And what's critical is that we have to pray for ever-growing character because ever-growing character allows us to use the gifts right. Yeah. Uh, it also will legitimize the gifts to people you're working with. Uh, now here's the problem. You can still be spiritually used by God and gifted and still not have character. And you're like, Oh, that by their fruit. Well, the whole Testament would have to be thrown out. (laughs) If you had to have matching character with the evidence of God's presence. That's right. Uh, but yeah, so you need to pray for the fruit of the spirit, which first Corinthians 13 is the first one love. You need to find out what your spiritual gifts are. And, and Dan, as we've talked before, just I'll throw this out because I'm just, I'm throwing out like 40 grenades and I'm going to leave and then you yeah. can talk is don't confuse natural gifts and acquired gifts with spiritual gifts. It's death. Natural gifts is what you're born with. You could be born athletic. You could be born as a good mathematician. You might be engineering like none of those are spiritual gifts. You don't need, you don't need the Holy spirit to be in the room to be a teacher. You don't need the Holy spirit in the room to be a good engineer. You don't need the Holy spirit in the room to do math. Those things can be used for God but they're not guaranteed places of power. Um, Acquired gifts is what you learn. You go to school and you learn things. Can you use that for the kingdom? Of course. But spiritual gifts are spiritual endowments that God sovereignly assigns you where the Holy Spirit has to be in the room for them to work because they're not natural. Now, they don't always feel supernatural, but you can see that they are. And um, maybe it would help your crowd. Do you want me to talk about how you might know where you're gifted? I would love that because yeah, so the, like, I think for some of our listeners, the only place that maybe they would know to start is, you know, maybe a gift test or yeah. So how, do you, how do you know your spiritual gift? Well, here's, here's a f- first thing. You got to read the Bible and find out what the gifts are, which ones are, then you got to read some definitions. That's why, you know, as you know, I wrote convergence for our church because we needed a set of definitions that we were all saying the same thing. And then here's where you're usually gifted. Three ways of telling us the rule of dots. Here's the first thing. Why does it keep happening to you and it doesn't happen to me? So, you know, you're hanging out with someone and they are always praying. And you're like, they say to you, hey, how was your prayer life? And you're like, yeah, I prayed for 30 seconds today. It's in the Lord's Prayer. And they're like, oh, yeah. They say, I had a bad day. I prayed for two hours today. And you're like, what? Now, right in that moment, if they're not mature, they're going to say, what's wrong with your spiritual life versus understanding, Oh, that's where I'm gifted. (laughs) That's good. So, so if it keeps happening to you and you'll start finding out where it keeps happening to you, if you actually talk about this. So when you talk to someone with a gift of faith, people with the gift of faith are not flighty people who say, Oh, I believe, I believe. No, no. If you really do diagnostic with them, they know where God's going to do that thing. It's almost like they have radar And there's like 10 options in front of them. And they go, oh, God's going to do that. I believe God's going to do that. God can do anything. But he's going to do that thing. And they bring like oxygen in the room. And everyone else is like, I don't believe that. I think that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That where's the the Gantt chart? Where's where's the executive summary? The person of faith is like, executive summary? 
God's going to do that thing. What's wrong with all of you people? So, you know, it, it's, you know, it's discernment people. They always sense demons places. Now we can talk about why that's dangerous and there's a whole another story. But the point is, why does it always happen to you mm-hmm. and it's not happening to your neighbor? So rule of dots. One dot, eh, it's a thing. Two dots, interesting. Three dots or more, conversation. Second place, you'll know where your gift is, where you're pissed off. Hmm. Where you're always angry at church is where you tend to be gifted. Every administrator is like, build a freaking plan. Can anyone build a plan? I'm just looking for a plan. I'll be really happy. The pastor can say anything. I just want a plan behind the pastor. The visionary is like, we need to take that hill and that hill and that hill. The people who have mercy are like, why don't we care about poor people around here more? You know, you pastors are just trying to take, you know, plant five new sites. But what about the sheep over here? And the leader's like, get out of my way. I have to save the whole Roman empire. And he's like, but what about the sheep? He's like, I care about all the sheep, not just one of the sheep. And the shepherd's like, we need to hug the sheep. The prophet's like, we need to hit the sheet like wherever you're angry is where you tend to be gifted so watch where you're angry at church watch where you're angry in ministry world and then go i need first corinthians 13 i need more of first corinthians 13 i need more of first corinthians 13 and then go okay maybe a lot of my angst and anger at church is because of gift tension not personality or an enneagram type mm-hmm. so that's the second way to identify your gift and the third way is to talk in community once you've got like 21 definitions of sort of where village lands, then you go, what do you think, everyone? And it's going to be really funny. People are going to go, oh, it's so obvious. Dan, you've got this. You're going to be like, what are you talking about? They're like, oh, it's, it bleeds out of you all the time. And what we love, again, why Convergence was written originally and why we did it publicly through a series uh, was we wanted it not through a test but organically for people to go, oh, my goodness, that's so you. And the person goes, Oh, you're right. And here's what changes. When you know it's a spiritual gift for real, you walk with greater confidence in what you're doing. Hmm. You've got the Holy Spirit's backing. You're always wondering. It's like when I get up to preach, I know the Spirit of God is with me. Hmm. I know it. Not because I have the title pastor, not because I'm an elder, not because I have a doctorate. Relevant, relevant, relevant. Because I have the spiritual gift of preaching. I know it. Hmm. And it's been affirmed. And by the way, the community will affirm the gift. If you think you've got something and everyone says you don't, you probably don't. Just a little side note. Um, I love I love hearing you talk about spiritual gifts and spiritual disciplines. I might I might be misquoting you, but I think you say in your book and also in some of the lectures that you do that spiritual disciplines are a guaranteed source of power, and spiritual uh, gifts are uh, spiritual gifts are the guaranteed source of power, and then spiritual disciplines are the guaranteed source of presence. I love that. I think that's a super great way of thinking that. Again, I may have misworded that, but um, I'm wondering if you could talk about also spiritual disciplines because these are kind of like. Like maybe we, we think of these are like ancient, Catholic, different, you know, like how do those work into our lives as a, a source of presence for us? Yeah. And how do we start? Like, like yeah. do we just like take all of them at once and then just try to adopt them? Like, where do we start? Well, they are ancient and they are Catholic and you need them. <laughs> so let's just say that. Okay. When I mean Catholic, I mean small c Catholic, universally Christian. Yes. And uh, so this is really, really important we catch this. Number one, spiritual gifts don't get, spiritual disciplines don't get God's attention. They get you in the space to hear him. Mm -hmm. It's not God's availability, it's ours. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is really, this is critical. Uh, At the beginning of COVID, one of the first things I preached in our church was Philippians 4.13, the most misquoted verse in the Bible. 
I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Everyone loves that bumper sticker. I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be wealthy. I can claim a home. Also, but they never read the context where Paul says this outrageous statement. I have found the secret to life. What? Have you written a self-help book we don't know about, right? And he says, whether I have everything or nothing, I have found the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So ready? Not a set of experiences. Jesus himself is the secret of contentment. Him, the person. Hmm. So how do you spend time as a Christian with him? The source of contentment with everything or nothing. And Jesus would say to you very quickly, how did I spend time with my father? Disciplines. So you will never be intimate with Jesus. You will never hear God's voice. You will never live a permission-based world until the disciplines become normal. Now, it's funny you're asking this. I don't think you know this. I'm preaching through all the disciplines right now at our church. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So the sister series to the spiritual gift series is being preached right now. So good. For our listeners, tune in. Uh, Sanctus Church. Is it .ca or .com? .com. .com. Um, you can follow along there. Yeah. So, so the Spiritual Gifts series was redone, I think, a year or two ago. And then this is the sister series. So we're actually walking through every discipline, what it looks like, what it feels like, how you start using it, what it is, and what it's not. So like today, I just this morning, before I got on this podcast, I just preached on the fasting. Next week, I'm preaching on celibacy. You all should listen. Uh, two weeks ago, I was preaching on solitude and silence. Uh, and the week before that, confession of sin, week before that prayer. So just remember, the disciplines clear the environment to learn to sit with God, be with God, and be encouraged by Him, rebuked by Him, refined by Him, uh, or just to be with Him. See, uh, so I'm married. I know not all, all of your listeners are, but many times my wife and I, when we're traveling together, don't talk. Not because we're angry. We just are in the car. Mm-hmm. And so remember, when I say a guaranteed place of encounter, I don't mean fire and Mount Sinai. It's just being with him mm-hmm. relationally. So disciplines put you there. So listen, I'm, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I would just encourage you to go listen to all the, all the sermons because it's like I take 40 minutes on each one, what it looks like, what it feels like, how you can go wrong with it, how you start it. So like last week, I taught on solitude and silence and how you spend 10 minutes at the end of your day where to find solitude, where to find silence. Today, when I was talking about fasting, I was talking about that hunger strikes and weight loss have nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. So don't confuse them, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I love that. I, I love that you say that, you know, um, spiritual disciplines aren't so much as, you know, us forcing God's presence into the room, but more of us uh, coming into the presence of God, or, or in other words, becoming aware of the presence of God by means of spending time with Jesus. Um, John, thanks so much for talking with us today about spiritual gifts and spiritual disciplines. I just want to encourage all of our leader, uh, listeners at home, um, all of us want more of the presence of God in our lives and are, are looking to grow in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. A great resource is Convergence. Um, you can pick it up at Amazon.ca. Um, but I would also just encourage you to start somewhere. Start by, you know, reading the Bible or, or praying or try the ancient practice of fasting. Uh, take, take, and, and j- just an encouragement there. Um, fasting without prayer is just dieting. We need to enter into a place of, of prayer and intimacy with God. And so, um, John, I, I just want to thank you. Our conversation was so rich. And to all of you at home, stay safe, stay home, and drink good coffee.